Support comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about prostate cancer with Dr. Daniel Petrolak. Dr. Petrolak is a professor of medical oncology and urology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. So uh, you work in what we call GU oncology, as mm-hmm. genitourinary. Right. And um, so there's several cancers that that involves? Well, there are several. I mean, that includes prostate, bladder, kidney, and testicle cancers. So uh, there are a number of different areas which which we investigate. Gotcha. And uh, I guess of those, what, prostate cancer is probably the most common one, right? Prostate's the most common. Testicular cancer is the least common. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And uh, I think a lot of us, uh, as we age, hear a lot about prostate cancer, and we get into the habit of, uh, you know, of bowing down before our internists once a year and uh, and uh, seeing what's going on. So I think that's what a lot of us are afraid of. Well, I, I think we're f- there's a lot of fear in men over the diagnosis. And it's very, very interesting to see that the, the originally when the advertisements were done for prostate cancer screening, they were done in the women's magazines because yeah. the wife used to drag the husband into to the office to get checked at that particular point. Mm-hmm. There's been an evolution of thought on the use of screening in prostate cancer. Right. Uh, a couple of years ago, the United States Preventative Task Force came out with a recommendation of D for prostate cancer screening. And I think that that was a little bit... What, ar- what does D mean? So D means that they don't recommend it. Oh. And uh, now that's actually changed. They've, they've modified that position. Uh, a variety of different groups have also modified that position. Uh, there has been a, a drop in the death rate of prostate cancer. In the 1990s, about 40,000 men were dying from metastatic disease. That's down to about 27,000 men projected for uh, the year 2018. That's still a lot of people. That's still a lot of people. It's the second leading cause of cancer death in men, hmm. and it's the most commonly diagnosed cancer in men as well. Right. So screening, uh, what that involves blood tests and a rectal exam, right? Blood test, rectal exam, and then if the PSA is abnormal or the rectal exam is abnormal, that leads to a biopsy to determine if the patient has a malignancy. Hmm. So how has it changed from this, uh, this uh, panel suggesting that nobody get it? Well, I think what's happened is there is a recognition that there is now more metastatic disease since that, recommend, that, that recommendation, hmm. that uh, the PSA test should engender a discussion between the physician and the patient about what they should do about it. One of a PSA of greater than four is considered to be abnormal. Mm-hmm. And it may not be appropriate for an 87-year-old with congestive heart failure to have a PSA drawn, but a younger man who has 30 years of life ahead of him may have a family history. Uh, that's the patient that we would like to focus on. And of course, we want to uh, catch curable disease early. Mm-hmm. And if, if the disease is more advanced, then come forth with multimodality treatment. But I think, again, it's, it, it doesn't substitute for being a good physician and talking to your patient about what needs to be done in a given situation. Okay, so let's say I choose to get screened, which I personally do, mm-hmm. um, and I've 
been fortunate to have nice low PSAs, but let's right. say mine was four or five right. or somewhere in there, which I know to be over the upper limits of normal. Now, now I'm feeling kind of worried. Well, what, what happens next? So then you would uh, be referred to a urologist. The urologist will perform a biopsy, also an ultrasound of the prostate to see if there's there's tumor present. Even if my rectal exam doesn't suggest one, is that right? You can you can have tumor present without with a normal rectal exam. That's correct. Mm. Okay, and, uh, and, and even if the ultrasound or whatever doesn't show anything, right? Correct. Uh-huh. Yes. So I get a, I get a biopsy, and, and then what? Well, then let's say if you have cancer diagnosed, let's take the worst case scenario. It all depends upon your extent of disease, what the Gleason score is, how extent the, extensive the tumor is within the prostate. So, mm. if you have a low grade lesion, Gleason six. What What is Gleason? Gleason is a a way of of measuring the degree of aggressiveness of a cancer. Okay. So, for example, a Gleason ten is the most aggressive. It's taken from the most common patterns that the pathologist recognizes, a 5 plus a 5, and that's somebody who has very, very aggressive disease. A Gleason 6 is the prostate cancer that you die with, not from. Okay. And uh, so there are a variety of different iterations on that particular scale and in different risk groups. But the Gleason 6 are the lowest risk and the Gleason 10s are the highest. Okay. So there's no 1 through 5s? Well, there are. They're not common. Gotcha. But, but again, the Gleason score... A, a pattern is one to five, and then the score is the two most common patterns. So oh, I see. Three plus three equals six, four plus three equals seven, five plus five equals ten. Right, but two plus two would equal four. Right, and it's not, those, those, are, not those are not common. Okay, so, not common. so let's say I was a lucky guy and I had a six, then what? So your physician and you should have a discussion about what to do next, and mm-hmm. this could include observation or watchful waiting, it also could include a radical prostatectomy. It could include radiation therapy. It all depends upon how extensive the tumor is and how extensively involved the gland is. And again, what your goals are. Mm-hmm. If you are a person who may be 85 years old and have congestive heart failure, may not be able to go forth with a surgical procedure, would not be appropriate to do that. Uh, also may not be appropriate to do a PSA in that, that type of patient. Sure. Uh, but again, I think it depends upon a discussion as to what you feel are the important impacts on your quality and quantity of life. Yeah, Dan, I know that this is a very stressful decision. You know, we had a, a close relative in my family who went through this uh, in the mm-hmm. last year and uh, struggled mightily uh, with this decision and opted um, for radiation, which is not necessarily the decision I would have made, but uh, really, you know, really struggled with deciding because. Again, um, you know, side effects are different with these treatments, right? Absolutely. And the way I... Often patients will come to see me for, quote, unquote, the unbiased second opinion. Because you're not a surgeon and you're not not a radiation doctor. Exactly, about Mm -hmm. what to do. And the way I present it to them is we don't have randomized data. Mm-hmm. showing that one treatment is a better cancer treatment than the other. They're both about the same as far as we know, right. right? In fact, if you look retrospectively and you match the Gleason score and the clinical stage of each patient, mm-hmm. it seems as if the survivals in retrospective studies are the same for radiation therapy and surgery. Right. So what the way I, I, I put it to the patient is, given the fact that we really don't know, and, and maybe they are the same as far as an anti-cancer treatment is concerned, what side effects are you willing to put up with? And then what treatments, if this doesn't work out as your primary treatment, what treatments could you then go forth with safely afterwards? Hmm. So for example, if a patient has their prostate out and their PSA begins to go up, it should go down to zero after the surgery, we often give 
salvage radiation therapy to the patient in that situation. Side effects are uh, uh, the, their continence levels are frozen at the level that they start out with, or they may also have more sexual dysfunction. The opposite is a little bit more difficult to do. So if a patient has radiation therapy and then decides, I want to go for a salvage prostatectomy, there's a higher rate of incontinence. Mm. So I think that you have to look at the overall pictures as to what the patient is looking for. Uh, yesterday, I counseled somebody who was considering, who is young, is 50 years old, and he was about to get married, and so he wants to have children. And he also wants to be sexually active. So that engendered itself into a very, very long, prolonged discussion about what to do, sperm banking in that particular situation, and how that may affect the couple. Because remember, it's not just the patient who's affected by it. It's the spouse as well. Hmm. And, and can you let us in on what the patient decided? Well, or? he decided to go for surgery. He's, he's leaning towards surgery at this particular point. I see. So he'll, he'll bank his sperm. Right. Um, wow. That, that, well, that, I can see why that would be hard because uh, the loss of sexual function is, is a reality, real possibility, although I guess that's also true with radiation, right? And not everybody maintains their sexual function. Is that, that right? That's correct. So if, if you – the patterns are different. If a patient does not undergo hormone therapy – which we often do with radiation for a high-risk patient. The patterns of sexual dysfunction are different than with prostatectomy. So with a prostatectomy, you have a, like a shock to the system, yeah. and um, you, you gain your potency over time. So if you're going into a surgical procedure potent, you have a 50-50 chance of coming out potent at some point, depending upon the, the surgeon, depending upon the, the extent of disease. If you get radiation therapy, you gradually lose your potency over time. So mm. in two years, it's 50-50. It's about the, same, about the same, but it's because of fibrosis that develops or scar tissue that develops uh, during the, uh, the radiation uh, uh, treatment or after the radiation treatment. So mm. at least that's a theory behind it. Gotcha. And, uh, and I remember hearing a lecture here at Yale a, a year or two ago from a urologist. Apparently, quite a lot is being done with people who've had prostatectomies in terms of trying to preserve sexual function right. if they're referred to such a person or if their urologist knows how to do that right away, right? There, there are nerve-sparing procedures. There are graft uh, nerve grafts that are being done as well. So there are a variety of different ways of trying to maintain the sexual function. Also, the post-operative period is crucial. Uh, giving drugs like Viagra uh, or other drugs that may uh, promote uh, erectile function, uh, that, that's helpful. And there's a vascular issue that goes on as well. So um, the interesting thing is that you know often the testosterone levels in these patients can be a little bit on the low side when they start off. Sometimes they rebound up after the surgery, and we don't really understand why. Hmm. But that also plays a function as well. Hmm. But the good news for, for patients who make either of these decisions is most of them, if it's an early stage cancer, are likely to be cured, right? About two-thirds of patients after prostatectomy should have their PSAs go down to less than 0.1. The other third, there's, of course, they, they may, that's considered to be a biochemical relapse. Whether that turns out to be clinically significant is another issue. But hmm. that's one of the more controversial areas of prostate cancer management. So what do you do for these patients who, whose PSA starts to rise? So what you do is, number one, you assess if there's any disease outside the prostate. Mm -hmm. So we have some newer tests that are now being developed, such as what's called a flucovine PET scan, which is a way of trying to detect prostate cancer outside the prostate bed. Okay. Uh, Standard imaging is also used in the situation. Like CAT scans. CAT scans, bone scans. We look at how fast the PSA is going up, the PSA doubling times. Mm -hmm. A patient who has a PSA doubling time 
of less than six months and relapses within a year of surgery. That's a patient you really want to be concerned about mm. because that's somebody who behaves as if they have de novo metastatic disease, in other oh, wow. words, if their cancer spread. So you've got to be very, very aggressive with that that patient. Uh, interestingly, the, the, the big dilemma is when do you start hormone therapy? And uh, there are studies now that are combining hormone therapy with radiation therapy for biochemical relapses. We're also looking investigationally at vaccines in the situation. This would be the perfect situation with low volume disease before it spreads to look at an immune treatment. So there are a variety of different standard treatments as well as investigational treatments that are now being evaluated. And when you talk about hormone therapy, you're, you're talking about blocking the effects of uh, testosterone, exactly. right? Exactly. So that sounds like that might have a few nasty side effects. As well. You know, we're, we're realizing more and more that hormone therapy is not just loss of sexual function that occurs with the deprivation of testosterone. There's weight gain. There's loss of muscle mass. There's osteoporosis or thinning of the bones. Uh, fatigue can be an issue as well. Men claim, quote unquote, I feel like the wind's been knocked out of my sails. Mm. That's a really, really common complaint. So when you've got a 50 or 60 year old who has 20 or 30 years of life ahead of them in that situation, and you're committing them to long-term therapy, that's, that's a very, very big decision. So again, we're being doctors, we're looking at our patients as a whole in addition to the cancer in the situation. Hmm. Well, Dan, uh, this is a very fascinating and very important topic for our patients um, and our audience to, to learn about. Right now, we're going to take a break for a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about prostate cancer with Dr. Dan Petrolak. Support comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting, even after decades of use, can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Dan Petrolak. Uh, who's professor <laughs> professor of medical oncology and urology, and we've been talking about prostate cancer. Dan, I, I'm hoping that we have time, some time to talk about bladder cancer as well. But I, uh, you know, I, again, I think people are very interested in prostate cancer, and uh, I know that uh, there's over the years people have been very worried about if they had metastatic prostate cancer, there there might not be many treatments. Is that still the case? No, that that's that's really not the case. There's been a tremendous amount of research and new drugs that have been approved by the FDA for metastatic prostate cancer. It's really evolved uh, very, very nicely over the last 15 years. So in uh, 
2004. There were two drugs approved for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Oh, castration-resistant. What does that mean? So this means that a patient... I don't want to be castrated, Dan. No, in fact, patients absolutely hate that term. In fact... I hate it. I'm listening to you. There's a movement now towards changing it to endocrine-resistant. That that would be better. Primary endocrine-resistant because as... We had written in an editorial a couple of years ago, it's both pejorative and descriptive. We want to take the pejorative part out of that uh, out of that description. But let, let's take a patient who comes in to see us who's got newly diagnosed metastatic disease. Okay. Their testosterone levels are normal. Let's say they're 400. They have disease in the bone. They have disease sometimes in the lymph node, sometimes in the liver as well. And that's actually a poor yeah, prognostic group of patients. Bad. So the first treatment we would go forth with is androgen deprivation therapy, which would be to deplete the body of testosterone. And there are a couple of ways that we can do that. One way is to short circuit the signal that goes between the brain and the testis that tells the testicles to make testosterone. Okay. The second way is blocking the binding of testosterone to its target. Okay. So like a lock and a key, the testosterone is the key and it goes into the lock and then turns on the cancer cell and makes it divide. So by divide, by depriving the body of testosterone, in addition to those symptoms I, I mentioned before, the side effects, we will cause the cancer cells to regress. It doesn't cure it. Okay. It makes it get better. You can see PSA declines that go from 1,000 to zero. Wow. You can see improvements in urination. We've had patients who've had spinal cord compressions from cancer that goes to the back and, and, and it obstructs the spinal column. That can improve and patients can start walking again. So there are dramatic improvements in the symptoms and the volume of disease. The trouble is it's not curative. And after about 18 to 24 months, the patients then begin to progress. Mm. So in, when I first started out in the field in, in 1989, there was no treatment that improved survival. In fact, we wrote several papers at that time saying the chemotherapy didn't work. And then we started looking at the taxanes in that situation, docetaxel. And these are chemotherapy these drugs. These are chemotherapy, chemotherapeutic drugs, that's correct. Uh, that we started seeing modest improvements in survival, and uh, I was co-author on, I was the lead author on one of the trials that got docetaxel approved in 2004 for castrate-resistant prostate cancer. And then there was a gap for a long period of time till about 2010. No new drugs were approved for this disease, and then we started seeing the science pay off. Immune therapy with drugs such as Provenge, which is a way of activating your T cells outside of the body, that shows a survival benefit. Other chemotherapeutic drugs such as Cabazitaxel were approved by uh, the FDA. And the interesting thing that was, was found, that even though the levels of testosterone in the body were low in the bloodstream, the tumor cells learned how to make their own testosterone. Oh, wow. So... There are drugs such as abiraterone, otherwise known as Zytiga or Extandi, which, uh, which will deplete the testosterone or, or antagonize the testosterone within the cancer cells and give us secondary improvements and improvements in survival. Wow. There are also isotopes that target the bone. Radioactive. Radioast- radioast- radioactive isotopes. And not only do they improve pain, but they make the patients live longer. And the drug that uh, we, we think about is a drug called radium-223, discovered by Madame Curie numbers, a number of years ago, a uh, long time ago, more than 100 years ago. But, but these are our, our, armament, our, our treatments in our armamentarium, and the real challenge is how do we sequence them? How do we decide upon one versus the other? So what we're finding now is moving some of these treatments up at the very beginning 
when patients first undergo hormone or androgen deprivation therapy. That gives us more bang for our buck. So we can see survival improvements of 18 months, 20 months, rather than three or four months when they use down the line when the patients are resistant. And so our trends now are to move these drugs up earlier in the course of the disease. The other thing that we're trying to develop, and we're actively involved in this at Yale, is personalized medicine or the personalized approach to patients with resistant prostate cancer. So about one in three patients will have uh, a deficiency in the ability to repair their DNA. Okay. And you, I'm sure you've talked on the show about BRCA and the breast-related uh, genes that are transmitted to patients. There are also other enzymes that are involved in DNA repair. Well, about a third of patients have that deficiency in prostate cancer, and this has been recognized very, very recently. So there are drugs now that we're trying to design based upon these signatures and phenotypes that we see from the tissue. Mm. And rather than giving a patient a drug that may be ineffective and toxic, we're now beginning to focus in on giving the right drug for the right patient. So the field has really, really evolved significantly over the past 20 years or so, and I, I can't wait to see what's going to happen over the next 20 years. No, that's great. And it, but it's it still sounds like if we can prevent the development of, of cancer spreading outside of the prostate, uh, th- that's really the best thing for the patient, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Uh-huh. And once it becomes metastatic, it's, it's, at this time, it's incurable. Right. So even though you're making what sounds like really terrific advances, it, this is something that men of a certain age, which you, maybe you should tell me what the age is, but men of a certain age should at least be talking uh, about the pluses and minuses of screening with their internists. Yeah. I, I mean, it depends upon which society you, you listen to. Well, I, I want Dan Petrolak's so opinion. Generally, if my, my opinion is you should, be, you should start screening at the age of 50. Okay. Um, if, you're, if you have a family history, also if you're African-American, you should be looked at earlier, age 45. Hmm. And the, the incidence of prostate cancer in African-Americans is, is higher uh, than the general population. The question is, is the disease different? And we really don't have good answers to that at this, at this time because we don't have enough data. And um, uh, we need more uh, encouragement into the entry into clinical trials for, for, for patients of different, different, different ethnic backgrounds too, so we can understand this better. Got it. So, so at what age should men of color be? Uh, I'd say 45. 45. And, and obviously if there's family history for them, perhaps even younger than that? Perhaps even younger than yeah, that. Yeah, gotcha. So, but Dan, I, I, I don't want to uh, uh, have you be on the show and now talk about your interest in bladder cancer, which is something that I know you're, you're very passionate about. What's, what's going on with that? So uh, there's been a lot of great things going on in bladder cancer. Yeah. This, 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 this is a field that was really uh, not moving at all when I first arrived here in 2012. Okay. And uh, if you had metastatic disease, your survival was about 15 months. There, are a por- there were a proportion of patients who, 5%, who had long-term survivals with chemotherapy, but really nothing really worked well. And then we, got, we pioneered, we were one of the pioneers in checkpoint inhibition therapy for bladder cancer. This is some kind of immune treatment. Immune treatments, exactly. So the, the trials, we just published our long-term data with the tezeluzumab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor. That's one of the ways of, of uh, the immune system 
uh, causing us that we call the Darth Vader effect, where it masks itself from uh, from the surveillance of the immune system. Wait, wait, wait. You mean the, the tumor, if I'm understanding you, uh, puts on like a cloak of invisibility right. from cloaking the device. immune cells. Right. It's yeah. a cloaking device. Gotcha. And then you have a medication that takes away the cloak? Exactly. Okay. So th- this works dramatically well in about one in four patients. And we've shown that the survival is better with this with these drugs and uh, clearly it's a big advancement and move forward but again one in four patients will have a good response so we're looking for other ways of improving on that and there are two different approaches we've taken one is to go back to standard chemotherapy mm-hmm. and we just published some data that came out in the Lancet was presented at the ESMO meetings back in the fall of a drug called ramasuramab which is a drug that inhibits some of the chemicals that cause new blood vessel, vessel formation. Okay. And bladder cancer is very vascular. It's got a lot of blood vessels. And we combined this with a chemotherapeutic drug called docetaxel, and we found that the tumor shrinkage rate was double with the combination compared to the single agent. And we also found that it delayed the cancer progressing. We're still waiting for the survival data, and we hope to have that within the next month or two. Uh, but, but we're very excited about that. The other thing that we're excited about are these what we call targeted uh, immune therapy agents. So there are drugs that use a monoclonal antibody, which is like a dart that you're throwing at a dartboard. Okay. It's a specific way of hitting the cancer cell. And there's a chemical called nectin, which we know is expressed in about 90% of bladder cancers. So we've got an antibody to nectin. Mm-hmm. We've linked it to a chemotherapeutic agent. Mm-hmm. It goes directly to the cancer cell, it gets internalized, the cancer drug gets chopped off, and then causes its anti-tumor effect. Uh, We found that about half of patients who've either failed immune therapy or who have uh, responded and then progressed on immune therapy, about half of our patients are responding to this. So we're very excited about the trials that we've opened now with this drug. It's called infortumab vedotent. Say that five times, In four, right? Right, right, uh, exactly. So, but it's 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 a it's it's a very very promising treatment, and so we've gone in an area where five years ago there was absolutely no activity. Uh, and one of the things we're worried about is we're going to have more clinical trial slots than patients to fill these clinical trials. Well, that's a good problem. It's, to it's have. a good problem to have, right? So I'm sure by the time it gets FDA approved, it'll have some cute name like bladder squasher or something like exactly. that. <laughs> exactly. Now, so just like the men uh, are worried with prostate cancer about sexual function. I think people with bladder cancer are really worried about, you know, continence or or how they're going to urinate at all, right? I well, mean, exactly. So after, the, you know, if they have their bladders out, there are ways of overcoming issues with continence. There are what we call continent diversions, where sometimes patients can urinate normally through their organs. Uh, uh, and, and you mean through their regular urethras? You can. It depends upon how. Uh, extensive their tumor is, mm-hmm. because the urethra sometimes is involved as well. And actually, right. uh, there, there was a case report in the New England Journal of Medicine about Hubert Humphrey, the vice president, who actually had his urethra involved and refused to have a urethrectomy at the time of his surgery. Huh. Uh, so, and he wound up dying from metastatic bladder cancer. But, but the you know if the urethra is not involved. Uh, the urologist can potentially construct a new bladder out of the intestine. Wow. And then it's hooked up to the urethra, and a patient's able to urinate regularly through their through their penis like they would normally. And there are also similar types of continent diversions for women as well. Huh. So this is this is a, is extremely important uh, effect on the patient's quality of life. 
They don't necessarily have to wear a bag, but it all depends upon what their extent of disease is, and that really needs to be discussed with the surgeon who's taking care of them. Hmm. And these people with these uh, continent diversions where they're using your urethra, uh, are they able to, to void spontaneously, or do they have to catheterize themselves? No, uh, well, it, it depends on the patient. Yeah. Sometimes they, they can, sometimes they can't. Wow. That's a, it's amazing what people can do, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but the bottom line is that... Um, you know, it's most important yeah, to be screened when appropriate. So, so what would patients, how do patients with bladder cancer uh, come to attention? So that usually it's nonspecific hematuria. Blood, blood, blood in the urine. Blood in the urine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the one thing that often patients are mortified or shocked at is that if I say to them, they ask me what caused my bladder cancer, and uh, I'll often say it's the smoking. And they're shocked because they don't associate the smoking with the bladder. They associate it with the Well, I don't lungs. smoke with my penis. Oh, uh, no. No, you don't. Uh, <laughs> I don't smoke at all, by the way. Right. No, none of us, none of us smoke. But, but no, the, the, the point is, is that, that the carcinogens that occur from bladder cancer sit in the, in the bladder. And, they, you know, if your urine is, is, is sitting in the, in, the, in the bladder itself and then you urinate, but the, the, there's exposure. You've got chemicals that you inhale. Yeah, chemicals that you inhaled. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, in Connecticut... Compared to the rest of the United States, Connecticut has a higher rate of bladder cancer than the rest of the country. Do we know why that is? We don't know at this point. It's the fourth leading cause of cancer in Connecticut, fifth leading cause of cancer across the United States. Hmm. So whether that's related to smoking, whether that's related to other chemical exposures that we may have, certainly that's, that's something that we need to investigate and try to understand. Dr. Daniel Petrolak is a professor of medical oncology and urology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.